Okay, I've got to tell you that I am um, very excited about this morning uh, because I've missed this the last couple of weeks. You may not have missed me. I don't really care. I've missed you. I've missed doing this. And so it's good to be here. Um, now, that, all that said, I need to, don't worry about it, Kyle. I'll get my own stuff. It's not a big deal. Totally fine. Gone for two weeks. No matter. What's happening with my screen? Why is it doing this? Is this are we okay? This isn't showing up. What is that? Been gone for two weeks, and the whole system is falling apart. Is anything on the screen? What about now? All right. Thank you. All right, so as I was saying, and you can now read, I am excited about this new series ready to start. I'm ready. These messages have been written for a few weeks now, uh, so they're ready, but I could be wrong. I don't believe the Holy Spirit was ready. And the reason I don't think the Holy Spirit was ready is it's for the last week, um, and really yesterday, it was hitting me that it's not the right time yet. And I know that seems really weird and almost like, woo, that it's like I'm, I'm hearing voices and all of that. I, I don't think it's that. I like to be an organized person. If you look at my desk, you wouldn't think so, but I like to have a plan as to where I'm going and what I'm doing, and I want the messages to be ready, and I like to run through them. I like to make sure that it's all pieced together. I like to be organized, but at the same time, and I've really been working on this, I don't want my desire for organization and preparation to quench the movement of the Holy Spirit. And when he's wanting to move and he's wanting to do something, I don't want to tell him, no, no, I've got this because this is prepared. And that's where I was yesterday. So I prayed, and Jason and I were on the phone as he was driving from Iowa at about 2 o'clock yesterday. And I said, I think I'm going to write a new sermon for tomorrow. Um, and his response, there was a long pause, um, followed by, okay. Um, and so I did. And, and here's why I'm doing that, this. Last week and the last couple weeks have been really tough uh, for a lot of people in our congregation. And maybe not for you, but I would be surprised if it wasn't for you because this is a pretty close-knit uh, family. And so when some of us struggle, a lot of us struggle. And I look at it, and David Parker has left us, and Katie Travis loses her dad. We've had multiple surgeries and multiple diagnoses that people don't like to get, some of which you know about and others that you don't. I've heard it multiple times from people, what's going on? Why is all of this happening all of a sudden? It seems like there's a lot of this happening right now. This last week I got an email at school. I noticed that there was a student of mine that had been gone, um, which is a little weird when you come back from break and somebody's gone. And the reason the student had been gone is because a very close family member essentially had raised this student, uh, committed suicide on Christmas. And I, I just, I've been a little bit burdened by all of that. And it's been on my mind. And so this series that we're going to start is still going to start. Next week, Dave is going to kind of do a farewell message. But it's not a farewell message because you're not leaving. Even if you want to, you're not allowed to. So Dave's going to preach like a, a, a final message to our congregation next week. And then we'll start this series on the 22nd. But I want to speak to some of this this morning. Actually, I, I don't even want to say that. I am wanting the Holy Spirit to speak to some of this this morning, and so let's just ask him to do that, can we? Father God, I thank you for this morning, and I'm your child, and you know me better than I know myself, and so I know you know that I like to feel prepared, and I don't this morning. So I'm asking you to just take over, to say the things that need to be said, and even if it's one individual in this congregation this morning, I pray that you would move and that you would speak 
and that they would leave here um, more confident in the hope that we have in you. That's our prayer. That's our prayer for this morning. And so we invite your presence here in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you got them, to Ephesians, the first chapter. Ephesians, the first chapter, I want to look at something specific that Paul is telling the church there that I think, obviously, the Holy Spirit is saying to us. Ephesians, the first chapter, I want to look at three verses, 11 through 14. Well, 11, 12, 13, 14. That's four verses, 11 through 14. All right, here we go. You can catch up when you get there. In him, in Christ, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything, who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Everything that happens, happens according to the purpose of his will. In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also, what's our purpose to be the praise of his glory? And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. When you came to Christ, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who look at this, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. You get that, right? The Holy Spirit, which is an incredible gift, is merely a deposit on what is coming for all of us. A deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. All right, those three verses are incredibly encouraging. I want you to look specifically at verse 12. Look at what it says in verse 12. We were the first to hope in Christ. Look at that word, hope. Our word hope does an incredible disservice to Scripture. In fact, this is going to seem wild, but every time you read the word hope in Scripture... Your understanding of it is leading you in the opposite direction of what the Bible is trying to teach. I know that seems wild, but it's maddening to me that every time we read the word hope, what is getting ingrained in our heads is the opposite of what Scripture is trying to teach us. What do I mean by that? Well, how do we understand the word hope? You say to me, do you think the Colts will win their game today? After I finish laughing, what am I going to say back to you? I will say back to you, well... I hope so. Actually, I hope they don't because I want the better draft pick. But it doesn't matter. I will say back to you, I hope they do. In other words, when I say that, I hope that the Colts win, what does that convey to you? When I say hope, what is it conveying? It's conveying to you a sense of uncertainty. Well, I hope this happens. That's the way we understand the word hope. That's the polar opposite of what Scripture teaches about Christian hope. Look at what Scripture teaches, what the Bible means. Hebrews says it. Now, faith is confidence of things hoped for. Look at this. The certainty of things not seen. Hope, Christian hope, is a certainty of what is coming in the end. Hope is a life-shaping certainty about the future. That's what real hope is. And our understanding of it in the English language, I wish we could use a different word so that we grasp what is actually being instructed here. What we know happens then changes what we do and how we live now. That's the reality of Christian hope. So how do we illustrate this? Uh, Tim Keller is one of my favorite theologians, and he gave a lecture in Hong Kong. And um, in it, he gave this, uh, because you got a lot of uh, very bright people there who think and, and you know, they, uh, the, the whole idea of um, aspirations and hope and all of that, that's not, 
That's not their culture. It's not the way that they live. And so he's trying to illustrate this reality. And he says, imagine that you have these two rooms that are identical. Okay, you can see that. The two rooms are identical, yes? Okay, it has the same lighting. It has the same temperature. The outlets are in the same place on the walls. You have the same chair positioned in the same place. And you bring two individuals in, and you put them in those chairs. And you hire them and say, every day you will come here between 8 o'clock in the morning and 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Okay, you get 30 minutes for lunch, and every day in this room, you're going to be given this wooden plank that has a bunch of holes in it, and you're going to take these pegs, and you're going to put them in these holes. That's your job, and it'll take you all eight hours to do that. And then you go home, you come back the next day to the same room, and you sit here and you do that every day. That's your job, okay? Same job, same responsibility, same pieces of wood that have the holes in the same place. Everything is identical. You're following me so far? You take the person from the first room and you pull them to the side and say, when you get done with this after a year, we're going to give you $10,000. And you take the person that you send into the second room and you tell that individual, when you get done with this at the end of the year, we're going to give you $10 million. Okay, you have the exact same job, you have the exact same conditions and everything, but is the approach that those two individuals have to the job and the task that they've been given going to be the same thing? Not at all. The first person, how you process your job depends on what you know is coming. You get that, right? You're going to have the person in the first room who's going to say to the person in the second room during a break, man, this job is awful. It is tedious. It is miserable. It's boring. And the guy in the second room is going to say, uh, it's actually not that bad. I mean, all I'm doing is putting pegs in the hole. They're going to pay me $10 million. That's incredible money for what I'm actually doing here. Do you notice something? You have identical circumstances, but they can be seen in two completely different ways. Based on what? Based on what is coming in the end. That's the key. How are they seen differently? Because of the two different futures that the individuals believe in. Nothing about their circumstances is different. The only thing that is different is what they know is coming in the end of their story. Listen, there is no escaping this reality. An atheist will try, agnostics will try, people will do their best to set this to the side, but you and I are hope-based creatures. We function according to the hope that we have in something. It's why some people are thrown into despair when that which they thought was going to give them fulfillment doesn't fill them. You and I are hope-based creatures. What you believe about the future will. There is no way to escape this as a human. It will affect you sooner or later. It's going to happen. There's a famous English novelist. His name is Somerset Maugham. It's a great name. Um, Somerset was not a believer, and it became very evident in his writing. He writes an autobiography, and in the autobiography, uh, this was his conclusion. Okay, he's talking about uh, the reality of the world and the universe, and he writes these words. He says, at long last, in the end, the universe will attain the final stage of equilibrium, when nothing more can happen. Eons and eons before this, man will have disappeared, will be long gone, and then the universe will eventually run itself out. Is it possible to suppose that it will even matter that he ever existed? Well, you think about this, eons and eons after man has disappeared from the earth, when the universe finally runs out, is it even going to matter that man existed? What is it that man will have done that will actually matter long after man is gone? He will have been a chapter in the history of the universe as pointless as that of the life stories of the strange monsters that inhabited the primeval earth. 
Well, it's great to look back and see those monsters, and eh, it must have been wild to live in the days of the dinosaurs. But it doesn't really matter to us anymore. I don't think many of you are affected by what creatures were swimming in the ocean seas back in the primeval world. Will it matter that man was ever here? I, I mentioned this in a previous message. No matter where you go or what you believe, ultimately, let's say that, that you believe that the earth is just going to continue forever and there's no afterlife or anything, eventually we know the sun is going to explode. It's going to die out. It's going to become a supernova. And when it consumes the entire solar system, when that happens, what earthly accomplishment is going to matter? What will human... Oh, we landed on the moon. Oh, the moon just got incinerated. Who cares? It's gone. Come up with an earthly accomplishment that will matter when it's all over and all done. Now, this seems overly depressing, but if there's nothing else beyond this life, is he wrong about that? Can you make an argument that anything man does matters if there's nothing after this? You simply can't do it. He goes on, this is how he finishes this very encouraging portion of his text. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good to come nor to fear evil, I must ask myself, now how must I live? The answer is plain, but it's so unpalatable. It's something we don't want to look at. It's dis disconcerting and distasteful that most men will not face it. We know it, but we're not going to face it. There is no reason for life, and life has no meaning. This dude was awesome at parties. Everybody wanted Spencer Maugham, or uh, Somerset Maugham to come to a party because, oh, good, he's talking about the universe again. Anyway, but let me ask you a question. He may not be the most encouraging individuals, but he was super smart, and he's spot on, and he says when a person, given that worldview he's spot on, he says when a person finally understands this reality that I'm talking about and admits it, they will have ultimate freedom. You will find ultimate freedom in accepting the reality that nothing you do is ever going to amount to anything or matter. In the end, that is the ultimate freedom. I can do whatever I want. Why not? There's no rewards. There's no punishments. So I can do whatever I want. Ultimate freedom. But you know what else he said? He said it's a double-edged sword. Because the same person, when they come to realize this right here and find that ultimate freedom that nothing man does actually matters, they'll realize they can never be happy. They'll never find happiness. They'll never find fulfillment. So that's why man doesn't deal with it. We, man, who doesn't believe in the afterlife, just convinces himself that this is all there is, and so he focuses on the here and now, and he doesn't pay attention to that which will follow. Do you know how many mogams are running around uh, us? They're everywhere. They just haven't processed it through like he has. A majority of people in our world, in our community, they ultimately are saying to themselves, as far as I know, when you die, that's it. I don't see a reason to believe in an afterlife, but there is a reason to believe in this life. And so therefore, forget an afterlife. I'm going to spend my time here on earth working for justice. And I'm going to work for fairness. And I'm going to work for equality. And I'm going to work for kindness. I don't think there's anything that follows, but for the time I'm here, I'm going to do all of this good stuff. That'll give my life meaning. Do you know the question that Spencer Malgam would ask that I'm going to ask? I'm going to spend all of my time and all of my energy working hard to accomplish all of these things. What is the logical question that would follow that? Why? Why are you going to expend all of that energy if ultimately it doesn't matter? You see, these people that live this way, they don't see the inconsistency. They keep it hidden from their eyes. That they're saying all of this stuff matters, and yet they know, given their worldview, when the sun blows up, none of it actually matters. But even then, this is what Morgan was getting at. Eventually, 
it will affect them. They can try to live this way. And you see this. People that eventually are overcome by their despair. Why? Because they've sat there and they've processed that they really don't believe there's anything beyond this and ultimately nothing matters. Somerset said, it will eventually infiltrate the moments of quiet in your life. You'd be sitting on a park bench. She wrote a book about a guy that sat on a park bench and came to this reality and then ended his existence because there was no point to it anymore. In times of despair, it will invade your heart. In times of, of heartbreak, what is this? Why am I putting myself through this? There's no ultimate end to any of this stuff, so why am I doing it? There will be a deep meaninglessness that will creep through your entire soul. You won't know why, but here's why. It's what I said before. You have no hope. We are hope-based creatures. You cannot escape it. And eventually, even though you try, because it's unpalatable, to ignore that nagging sense that none of this matters, it will eventually get to you. Hope-based creatures. This book that I've got right here was about to go into my attic. It's sitting in a crate, and it's only my laziness that uh, of, it, it avoided that fate for the last couple months, and I'm glad that it didn't. This is a book, um, C.S. Lewis was the guy uh, who did a bunch of BBC radio lectures during World War II, and then they compiled a lot of those lectures into a book that was called Mere Christianity. And he has a chapter on hope. I want you to listen to this, okay? Listen to what he writes right here. Most people, yeah, listen to this. That's good. It's a little late on the click there, sorry. Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign distant land, or take up some subject that excites us, those are longings which no marriage and no travel and no learning can ever really satisfy. There was something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing which just fades away in the reality. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and the scenery may have been excellent, and the job may be a very interesting job, but it has still evaded us. You ever wonder why people who seem to have everything, Chris Farley, the dude was the funniest guy on planet Earth. He had all kinds of wealth. All of the people that have this huge, everything that we think success is, and they're the most miserable people on Earth. Why? Because it still evades them. It has evaded. And what is C.S. Lewis talking about when he says it? What is he getting at? It's that longing that we have for something more. Uh, Lewis had like a, it was kind of his, he was a colleague. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, the author, uh, wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and all of that stuff. They were both professors at Oxford. A lot of people say that Tolkien led Lewis to Christ, uh, if you know their whole story. But Tolkien has a work that a lot of people don't read. It's called On Fairy Stories. We call them fairy tales. But basically, Tolkien is writing this book to explain why he writes fairy tales. He's explaining and defending why he does that, why he writes myths and epics and sci-fi and fairy tales, because this was the major argument. Some people said, well, those things are for kids. Fairy tales are for kids, but adults should prefer, I mean, fiction's fine, but it should be realistic fiction, not this fantasy that's out there with dragons and princesses and all of that stuff. That's stuff that should be left behind for children. And Tolkien says that the human desire for fantasy was insatiable and will never give it up. He said, there's no way human beings will ever give it up. And I'm telling you, he was 100% spot on. How many Marvel movies can they possibly make? 
I'm serious. Like every other day they're coming out with a new one. Look at the box office. Look at the bestseller list. Fantasy continues to drive huge amounts of money. Human beings cannot escape, even adults, their desire for these fantasy worlds. And Tolkien says there's five reasons for it. Because in fairy tales, he says, people escape death. In fairy tales, people will step outside of time. In fairy tales, they will communicate with intelligent beings that aren't human. You remember Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You got these weird creatures that are talking to them. And you've read the, or seen the Lord of the Rings and all of these weird intelligent creatures that are out there. People in fairy tales have love that doesn't include parting. Right? And, and we long for that. And fifthly, people in fairy tales see, see evil completely defeated by good. That's what happens in fairy tales. And Tolkien said, this right here is why even adults will never escape their desire for this. And people say, but they're not true. None of that stuff is true. And yet there's still something consoling about those stories. You watch it, and, and you remember when Snow White came out? I mean, I'm not saying you actually remember when it came out. Some of you maybe did, uh, do. We don't need to say who. But when that movie actually came out, there were gasps of horror in the theater when Snow White ate the apple. And people were weeping. Man, this is a cartoon. And then people have this overwhelming sense of joy when Prince Charming, is it Charming that kisses Sleeping Beauty? I don't think so. Is it Philip? I don't know, when some dude puts his lips on the chick in the glass case. People go nuts when that happens, and we're very happy, and the story would not satisfy us if that didn't happen. We want those things. In fact, the human heart and the human soul craves those things. That's why Tolkien is saying, I'm never going to stop writing these stories, because it's what people want, it's what they desire, and that is precisely, friends, why real life will never satisfy us. Because real life doesn't have those things. It's completely logical to say that none of that stuff in fairy tales makes any sense. They're silly. You can't escape death. You can't leave time and space. You cannot communicate with beings that are intelligent, that are not human. Evil will always be with us, and everybody you love, you are going to lose. Either you will die and leave them behind, or they will die and leave you behind, or maybe they'll just walk away from you. Everybody you love, there will be parting involved. That right there, that stuff is life. I'm not arguing with that. It is life. Every single one of those things, and yet we can't help ourselves. Even though that's life, we cannot help ourselves. We can't help but want something else, and that's why we go to those theaters. That's why we read those books. All of us are drawn to those accounts like moths are drawn to a flame. We don't want to. We pretend that it's silly, but we're drawn to it. Fairy tales awaken in us desires, and they stimulate them insatiably. They cannot be satisfied. That's why we can't get enough of them. That's why you love Sleeping Beauty. It's why you love Beauty and the Beast. And all of you tough guys, oh, I don't really like those stories. You say as you sit down to watch Star Wars, right? As you sit down to watch The Lord of the Rings... You want these stories. We crave these stories. We can't get away from these accounts and these stories. Lewis put it this way. If I find myself in myself desires, which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. 
The fact that there is something insatiable that wants all of this stuff that I know can't really happen. The reason I'm drawn to it is because it has been put, this longing has been put in my soul, which is the clearest indication that my soul was made for another time and another place. And that's where Ephesians 1 comes in. I want you to look back at those verses again. And many people will come away when they read about Christian hope, and this is what they'll think. They'll watch a Joel Osteen sermon. They'll watch a prosperity gospel preacher on TV and they'll come away and this is what they think Christian hope is. If I'm good and I follow the rules and I follow the outline that's here in scripture, then God will give me peace and prosperity in this life. That's what I'm after. If I'm good, then all of these, I'm going to speak it, I'm going to name it, and I'm going to claim it, and it's going to come my way, hoping for the here and now that is not Christianity at all. Not even close. How do I know that? There was one person to live a good life. There is no one else who is good. Not even one. That one person was Jesus. Did he live a life on earth of peace and prosperity? He was a man of sorrows. A man who was beaten and abused and crucified on a cross. And by the way, Jesus said to his followers, you better expect the same because a servant is not above his master. This is, if they hated me, they'll hate you. Oh, if we're just the hands and the feet of Jesus, then the world will love us. What did they do to the hands and the feet of Jesus? Not loving things, friends. Jesus said what to expect in this life. No, Christian hope has to do with the future state, not the immediate state that we're living. There's a Puritan preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he did a whole message on hope. And in it, he said hope hinges on three things. Look at this list. Number one, Hope hinges on bad things turning out for the ultimate good. Hope is reliant on the bad stuff in your life ultimately turning out to be good. Hope, number two, hinges on good things in your life never being taken away. Hope hinges on that. And thirdly, hope hinges that the, on the fact that the best things are yet to come. Does Christianity speak to this right here in a way that the rest of the world simply cannot is that not what Paul is saying in this passage right here in verse 14? Look at what he says. Read it again. Who is a deposit? The Holy Spirit is, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his, glo his glory. Some translations of scripture will say his treasure. We are his treasure, God's treasure. Now, look down to verse 18 where Paul starts praying. I pray also that the eyes of your heart... Uh, may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. By the way, the word saints there, don't get confused about that. It's not talking about really good people. It's talking about those who are called in the name of Christ. We are God's rich and glorious inheritance. Stop and think about that for a second. Those who have come to him are God's rich and glorious inheritance. Those who are set apart in Christ are his treasure and his wealth. You know the best way to think about this? Have you ever watched the Antique Roadshow? I don't even know if it's still on TV. I've always thought that the appraisal is kind of silly. And why? Because these people take these treasured things that they have in their home and they want to know how much they're worth. So they come and they get them appraised. And they find out that it's worth some exorbitant, just radically huge number. But I always think that's silly because I guess sometimes they may sell that stuff. But the truth is that people that bring this stuff, this is their most treasured thing in their home. It's the painting that they adore and that they love. They're not getting rid of that. Most of them would not part with these treasures that they find out how much they're worth. They wouldn't part with these treasures for any amount whatsoever. Bullseye. 
That is exactly what Paul says. When God looks at those of us who are in Christ, that's what he sees. The riches of his inheritance. It's his wealth and his treasure that he wouldn't part with for anything. He looks at us, his children, and he feels rich. That's what scripture is saying. I want you to think that through and see how that can become the basis for an extraordinary hope that we can't even process. If that is how God values us now, and if God went to such lengths to win us and get us as he did, what is he going to do when we meet him face to face? That's the question that I have. If this is how he views me now, when I meet him in glory face to face, what does the psalmist say? You will fill me with joy in your presence. Can you imagine being filled by God with joy? With eternal pleasures at your right hand? Things that you and I haven't even fathomed. You know the stuff you love on earth, but God knows you better than you know yourself. And he's preparing something that blows all of that stuff away. That is what is at the end of your daily life where you come into that room and you put the pegs into the holes. That's what awaits you. Man, this job isn't so bad when you consider what happens at the end of that. This is how C.S. Lewis writes it. He kind of paraphrases the psalmist. Although Lewis never understood that a paraphrase is supposed to be shorter than the original, his always seemed longer. If we let him, he being God, he will make the feeblest and filthy of us into what? into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. Some of you have lost loved ones. This is what has happened to them. A dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. We cannot imagine a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. And he finishes and says, that is what we are in for. Nothing less. Nothing less. Friends, I can't wrap my mind around that. I don't know uh, if you ever watched. It was kind of a cult classic, uh, Hook. It was a Steven Spielberg movie that came out several years ago. Okay, um, And I think I saw it in high school. I think I, think I did. Uh, and might have been after. It doesn't matter. I saw the movie once. And it was okay. It wasn't my favorite. But the whole premise of the movie, stay with me. This is like the most important part of the message. So don't start. You're like the students at school. You start putting things in your bag. Man, no. This is it. Right here. Stay with me. Okay? So in the movie, the whole premise of the movie is that Peter Pan finally grew up. And he's got a job as an investment banker in California or something like that. And he's just got an ordinary, dry, boring job. Wendy, who's now like a grandma, she remembers Neverland and all of that stuff. But Peter Pan has blocked it out. He doesn't remember it anymore. I think Robin Williams played Peter Pan. He doesn't remember it anymore. And in one of the scenes of the movie, Wendy is sitting there and she's reading the accounts of the Lost Boys and Peter Pan and Captain Hook and all of that. And you see Peter Pan's face, this hardened investment banker. And as she's reading it, you can see on his face some of that stuff is starting to click. He's remembering something about that. Something sounds familiar to him. There's part of that story that is connecting with him. And Wendy notices it. And so she keeps reading. And she keeps looking up at him. And he keeps changing the countenance on his face. And after she reads it for a while, she looks up at Peter Pan. She looks him right in the eyes and says, Peter, the stories are real. Um, this last week, we buried um, an icon of this church a backbone of this church in Dave Parker. And several of you have different memories of Dave. I, um, 
one of my best friends in high school was Keith, his son. And so I have uh, more personal memories than I do the professional side or even the church side. Uh, but Keith had, as a youth minister in, in central Indiana, he'd invited me to come to ARC, uh, the ministries, the Rainbow Camp, to speak to a group of junior high kids. Because who wouldn't want to speak to a bunch of junior high kids? So I go there, and he's got a group of about 40. And, and Dave would always come to these because he was into space and the telescope and all of that. So you go out into the darkness of, of Rainbow's yards and you beam that telescope up. And I got done speaking and I was ready to go home. But Keith is very persuasive and he's like, oh, let's go see what dad's going to do. Okay, Keith. So we go out there and all these 40 kids and Dave will tell them what they're going to look at. And as they, as they look into the telescope and they see up these stars and the constellation that Dave has picked out for them uh, to look at, I remember that he would say to every single one of them, he would say to them, can you imagine what is beyond those stars? Can you imagine what is out there? If you see all of this, imagine what is out there. Dave isn't imagining what's out there anymore. Dave is seeing what is out there. And I could be wrong, friends, but if you listen, I really think that you can hear his voice this morning saying back to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, guys, the stories are real. This story is real. This is the foundation of your hope. This is what sets you apart. Let it be changed by it and live a new life in Christ. Father, Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your hope. Your hope that separates us, that makes us different, that gives us something that we can look forward to, that makes sense out of this otherwise meaningless life. Thank you for loving us enough that you came to this earth and redeemed us, that we might live forever with you. We feel that longing in our soul. We have this desire for things that, that we know can't be. And yet we know that the story is real. For those who are here this morning who have not yet responded to it because of pride or whatever it is, melt that pride. Prick their hearts with the knowledge that they even now at this moment are feeling. They know it's true. They know that you are truth. And they can no longer resist what they know. This is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. amen.